Episode 11. Winston stroked his nose gently with a paper clip. In the cubicle across the way, Comrade Tillotson was still crouching secretively over his speak right. He raised his head for a moment, again the hostile spectacle flash. Winston wondered whether Comrade Tillotson was engaged on the same job as himself. It was perfectly possible. So tricky a piece of work would never be entrusted to a single person. On the other hand, to turn it over to a committee would be to admit openly that an act of fabrication was taking place. Very likely, as many as a dozen people were now working away on rival versions of what Big Brother had actually said. And presently, some master brain in the inner party would select this version or that, would re-edit it and set in motion the complex process of cross-referencing that would be required. And then the chosen lie would pass into the permanent records and become truth. Winston did not know why Withers had been disgraced. Perhaps it was for corruption or incompetence. Perhaps Big Brother was merely getting rid of a too popular subordinate. Perhaps Withers or someone close to him had been suspected of heretical tendencies. Or perhaps what was likeliest of all. The thing had simply happened because purges and vaporizations were a necessary part of the mechanics of government. The only real clue lay in the words refs unpersons, which indicated that Withers was already dead. You could not invariably assume this to be the case when people were arrested. Sometimes they were released and allowed to remain at liberty for as much as a year or two two years before being executed. Very occasionally, some person whom you had believed dead long since would make a ghostly reappearance at some public trial where he would implicate hundreds of others by his testimony before vanishing, this time forever. Withers, however, was already an unperson. He did not exist. He had never existed. Winston decided that it would not be enough simply to reverse the tendency of Big Brother's speech. It was better to make it deal with something totally unconnected with its original subject. He might turn the speech into the usual denunciation of traitors and thought criminals, but that was a little too obvious. While to invent a victory at the front or some triumph of overproduction in the ninth three-year plan might complicate the records too much. What was needed was a piece of pure fantasy. Suddenly, there sprang into his mind, ready-made as it were, the image of a certain Comrade Ogilvie, who had recently died in battle, in heroic circumstances. There were occasions when Big Brother devoted his order for the day to commemorating some humble rank-and-file party member, whose life and death he held up as an example worthy to be followed. Today, he should commemorate Comrade Ogilvie. It was true that there was no such person as Comrade Ogilvie, but a few lines of print and a couple of faked photographs would soon bring him into existence. Winston thought for a moment, then pulled the speak right toward him and began dictating in Big Brother's familiar style. 
a style at once military and pedantic, and because of a trick of asking questions and then promptly answering them. What lessons do we learn from this fact, comrades? The lesson, which is also one of the fundamental principles of Ingsoc, that etc., etc., easy to imitate. At the age of three, Comrade Ogilvy had refused all toys except a drum, a submachine gun, and a model helicopter. At six, a year early by a special relaxation of the rules, he had joined the spies. At nine, he had been a troop leader. At 11, he had denounced his uncle to the thought police after overhearing a conversation which appeared to him to have criminal tendencies. At 17, he had been a district organizer of the Junior Anti-Sex League. At 19, he had designed a hand grenade which had been adopted by the Ministry of Peace and which at its first trial had killed 31 Eurasian prisoners in one burst. At 23, he had perished in action. Pursued by enemy jet planes while flying over the Indian Ocean with important dispatches, he had weighted his body with his machine gun and leapt out of the helicopter into deep water, dispatches and all. An end, said Big Brother, which it was impossible to contemplate without feelings of envy. Big Brother added a few remarks on the purity and single-mindedness of Comrade Ogilvy's life. He was a total abstainer and a non-smoker, had no recreations except a daily hour in the gymnasium, and had taken a vow of celibacy, believing marriage and the care of a family to be incompatible with a 24-hour-a-day devotion to duty. He had no subjects of conversation except the principles of Ingsoc and no aim in life except the defeat of the Eurasian enemy and the hunting down of spies, saboteurs, thought criminals, and traitors generally. Winston debated with himself whether to award Comrade Ogilvy the Order of Conspicuous Merit. In the end, he decided against it because of the unnecessary cross-referencing that it would entail. Once again, he glanced at his rival in the opposite cubicle. Something seemed to tell him with certainty that Tillotson was busy on the same job as himself. There was no way of knowing whose job would finally be adopted, but he felt a profound conviction that it would be his own. Comrade Ogilvy, unimagined an hour ago was now a fact. It struck him as curious that you could create a dead man, but not a living one. Comrade Ogilvy, who had never existed in the present, now existed in the past. And when once the act of forgery was forgotten, he would exist just as authentically and upon the same evidence as Charlemagne or Julius Caesar. End of chapter four.